in June of 1776, Thomas Jefferson wrote the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. In the most famous section, the preamble, Jefferson lists what he identified as three inalienable human rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. His draft was then submitted and then heavily edited and adjusted, shortened by a quarter. In fact, Jefferson later commented that the committee had, quote, mangled his version. But one phrase survived each draft throughout the process, and that was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was there from the beginning. Historians note that this list isn't entirely original to Jefferson. John Locke had argued that God granted men the right to life, health, liberty, and property. I guess the Apostle Paul didn't get the note on that one. But So why had Jefferson made the switch from property to happiness? Some historians believe he got the idea from some Scottish moral philosophers he was reading at the time. No one's quite sure. More importantly, since this was the founding of a new nation and the foundational document of that nation, what did he and the rest of the Continental Congress mean by happiness and how to pursue it? Our third president never specified in any of his writings, but it was obviously important to him and the thinkers of the day. Of course, the desire to be happy is natural, not just for Americans, but for all people. It's normal. People want to be happy. You want to be happy, so do I. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be happy and to try to pursue happiness? How should that be defined? You know, when you were a little child, a toddler, it made you happy to splash in puddles and eat mud pies. I trust that that's probably not what makes you happy still today. When you were 15, it probably made you happy to stay up all night with your friends being crazy. If someone had told me I had to stay up all night tonight, I'd probably cry. I don't want to stay up all night anymore. I'm guessing most of your tastes and happiness have changed as the decades go by. But now as people who understand more about life, more about the world, and as Christians who recognize there is more to life than this life, more than our emotional feelings right now, are we even supposed to pursue happiness? Is it compatible with a life lived for the glory of God? You've probably heard the phrase, God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy before. You may have even heard it here from me or someone else. And in the normal emotional feeling sense, there's truth to that. The great purpose of your life is not that you feel the way you want to feel at any given moment. That's not God's highest plan for your life. Not at all. But the fact of the matter is that God does want you to be happy. He says so. There are more passages than we have time to go through this morning that talk about God's intentions for your life and for my life, for our joy and our fulfillment, for our abundant satisfaction. After all, he's the one that said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's happiness God's way. Now, unlike Jefferson or John Locke, God has carefully described and defined what real, godly, heavenly happiness is all about. And it's much more than a fleeting feeling. It's more than a passing fancy or piling up some possessions or properties here on the earth. Heaven's happiness is presented in the Bible as the most important thing you could possibly pursue with your life. In fact, here at the beginning of the book of Psalms, this incredibly personal and devotional and essential book, not just for individual believers, but for the congregation of God's people, right here at the beginning, we are given God's truth about the pursuit of heavenly happiness. Psalm 1 
is all about happiness God's way and how essential it is and how what God's desire is concerning it in your life. And it is presented to us as a matter of life and death, covering our day-to-day experience all the way through to the end of human history. Now, this morning, you might find yourself in a time of great personal difficulty. Maybe this talk about happiness is making you think, look, I don't have time for happy thoughts. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to survive. On the one hand, God's word says today that your ultimate survival is exactly what Psalm 1 is talking about. And it also reveals that our Lord intends much more for each of us than just getting by as we live out life. Now, this is a really significant psalm. It sounds silly to say that, but it's a prominent and significant psalm. Scholars agree that it serves as a preface to the rest of the book. They point out that in some of the ancient manuscripts, it's not even numbered, but rather presented as an introduction to the songs that follow. Charles Spurgeon took a look at this psalm and and studied it, and he used this analogy. He said, you know, Psalm, what we call Psalm 1 is like the text, and all the other psalms are like a sermon describing what we read in Psalm 1, as God and his people elaborate on what the Lord has revealed about life and about godliness and about God's plan for this world revealed in Psalm 1. As a text, It has echoes and parallels in the parables, the Sermon on the Mount, other parts of the New Testament as well. In six short verses, it delivers to us a powerfully concentrated dose of guidance and truth, showing the way to a vibrant, meaningful, happy life. The first verse, the first phrase of this remarkable book is this, how happy is the man? Happy, blessed, enviable, highly favored. This opening line is is just loaded with implications for us. As Bible students, we would call this a beatitude. What follows here is God's revelation of his supreme ideal for your life. Uh, It's a statement, uh, his, his supreme ideal for your life is a state of fulfillment that is well beyond splashing in mud puddles or piling up um, some stock options or anything like that. The the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth is saying here at at the outset of this wonderful book, here is ideal happiness presented. You see, when humans do the defining of happiness, it's completely subjective. If I polled everyone here this morning and said, you are the most happy when what? What makes you the most happy? What do you, how do you think you would be the happiest on vacation or on a day off or something like that? We'd have all sorts of different definitions and different opinions and different ideas. One person might define happiness as being wealthy. Another person might define it as being loved. Another might define it as feeling good all the time. And so which is it? Well, God, the creator, says that this is it. This, what follows, is actual, true, meaningful, eternal happiness. And it's his definition that matters. Now notice how he says it. Happy is the man or the person. Not how potentially happy a person could be. The Holy Spirit presents this to us as a statement of fact. Now, most of you are probably really familiar with this text. You maybe even have it memorized. But from the outset, it's saying if you are a believer who will go God's way, this is the ramification and the result of your life. Not a theoretical, not a potential, but this is who God has made his people to be. This is how God has designed the Christian life, the way that he calls us on. Now, we are conditioned to be wary of get-rich-quick schemes, and that's a good thing. Uh, We are 
hopefully trained to listen to a sales pitch that seems too good to be true and say, that's too good to be true. Just the other day, I saw a commercial for some diet program. I don't know what it is because I watched the commercial and I thought, well, I'm not going to that website. But I watched this commercial. It's for some sort of diet program. And the guy on the commercial, the testimonial he was giving was giving the impression that he's like, well, I'm, his job is to be a candy tester. He's a candy maker. He says, I eat candy morning, noon, and night. And on this program, I still lose weight. And I thought, well, that's obviously not true. We all understand you can't eat candy morning, noon, and night and lose weight. Those things are, are mutually exclusive, right? If, if that was true, I'd be like rail thin right now. <laughs> I love candy. And so we know that that's too good to be true. But look at what God is saying here. He's on record as providing the way for you to have a truly, eternally happy, fulfilled, to be envied life. That should really arrest our attention if we're paying attention. If someone came to you and said, listen, I have got the map that leads to El Dorado, the city of gold. And if you follow this map, you'll get there. And whatever you find there is yours to keep. Now, if, for, if we could suspend disbelief for a moment here, and, and we, if we believed that that person was telling us the truth and that that map was authentic and that if we really went, we would really get whatever we could carry out, wouldn't we act on it? Of course we would. In some way, we would find a way to act upon that information. And here, what do we have? We have someone laying out a map to everlasting treasure right before us. Now, the fact that this psalm gives us the roadmap to real happiness in life indicates that we do not know the way ourselves. God has to reveal it to us. He's giving us this information because we don't know it otherwise. The truth is that human beings aren't just going to stumble upon real lasting happiness accidentally. We need a God of grace to reveal it to us and instruct us along the way. And so the question that arises then is this, do you believe that God knows better than you? If God is coming here and saying, hey, I have a lot of things to say to you. And here's the first thing I want to say in this book. This is the key to the happy life. And we pause and we think, well, I want to be happy and people around me want to be happy. And God says, then this is what needs to happen in your life. Or this is the road that is taken in order to lay hold of that thing that you desire so desperately in your heart. Do we believe that God actually knows the way and that he actually knows better than we do? That he knows better about your future, about where you should live and what you should do and who you should be with? If the answer is yes, then we have to go his way rather than our own. No matter how much sense our own way makes or how reasonable it seems or how, you know, what good averages other people had going this way. We have to believe him and say, okay, well, Lord, then I will go your way because I believe that you know more than I do. And what we find in the Bible is that God's way has to be revealed to us. He has to show us the way to go. As verse one continues, it begins immediately describing godly happiness. It's not like the Declaration of Independence that kind of throws it out there and just leaves it completely open to interpretation. It says, hey, this is the happy life that you should be able to pursue. And this is what it's like. And the way that God begins describing happiness here, it does so by telling us what it is not. And that's not unusual. If I were to ask you to describe what it means to be healthy, one of the first things you would probably say is, well, it's not being sick. And so here's how the verse goes on. How happy is the man 
who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. The Bible makes it clear that there are only two paths in life. There is God's way and there is the other way. Now, lots of human religions like Buddhism try to imagine what's called the middle way, a third route, a part way between. Right now in politics, there's always a lot of argument about whether the country should go right or whether the country should go left or should our country go down the middle, the center route, right? When it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternal matters, there is no third route. It's one way or the other. While we can detect a downward progression in this verse, your translation may even show it plainly as walking and then standing and then sitting. I was struck by the general bombardment of ungodliness confronting the person trying to live a heaven's happiness out in their life. If you put yourself in the psalm and try to walk through this psalm as the person here in in verse 1, It's that you've set out in pursuit of happiness and immediately you've got the enemies of God standing in your way, giving you advice, flooding the airways with their philosophies and their mockeries and their scorn. But like health is the absence of sickness, we see here that godly happiness means to be free from the influence and the mindset and the sway of those opposed to the Lord. And it's not just talking about Christ hating atheists who are militant and angry and make it their mission to mock our savior. The Bible explains that if a person or a system or a philosophy or a teaching is not submitted to God's way, then it is going the opposite way. But notice here, they're inviting you as the person in verse one, they're inviting you to come along, to join them on their yellow brick road, to see where it goes. Be a part of our traveling party here. But this Psalm and many other passages of scripture explain that the way that they are going will ultimately lead to ruin. Rather, the happy person follows the path laid out in verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. Christianity is much more than just not doing certain things. It is an active life that engages the mind, the heart, the body, our skills, our time, our resources. This is one of the problems that the Pharisees had, right? They thought, well, if I follow this list of rules, I didn't do certain things on the Sabbath. I didn't do certain things with my body or with my money or with my whatever. Therefore, God's happy with me. I've honored God. And Jesus explained to them, he says, yeah, what I, I want your heart. And so Christianity isn't just about, well, I didn't do the following things. Therefore, I'm good to go. I'm living the Christian life. The Christian life is much more than that. It's an active life and engages all areas of our experience and of our living. The psalm here says that a happy person is characterized by a love for the word of God. Now, scholars and commentators argue at this point over whether the immediate meeting when it was written, what did the psalmist mean by said, I meditate on the law of the Lord. Some say it was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Others argue that it's the book of Psalms itself. That's what's being meditated on. Others still say that it's the whole Old Testament. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but there's really no need to debate that because we know that God's word is unified. The scriptures were what we call a progressive revelation where it was written over you know, centuries by lots of different people and compiled together. Yes, it's true. Moses didn't have, you know, the Old Testament. David didn't have all of the Old Testament. None of the Old Testament believers had, you know, the New Testament. But now that scripture is completed. Yes, it progressed. But all along, the Bible is unified. God's word is unified. It's complete. It's in harmony with itself. 
All of the scriptures fit together. And now, of course, along with the written word, we have the living word revealed to us. Jesus Christ, the word John called him, who put on flesh and came and dwelled with us. And so Psalm 1 explains that people who have laid hold of heaven's happiness, people who are on God's way, are people who love Jesus Christ and love the scripture, that those things delight them. We're told the Bible has been given to us as instruction for life and godliness. You know, usually people don't really get excited about the release of a new reference manual. I don't know how many of you have ever waited in line for a dictionary or a reference manual or encyclopedia. I never have. Way back in 2007, when the seventh and final Harry Potter novel was released, it was big news. People waited in long lines all over the globe to get their copy. There was one young fan interviewed by the New York Times. She had camped out in Piccadilly Circus to get her copy of the book. She said this, I slept three hours in the last two days in the rain. But now that she had finally laid a hold of that book, was she going to go to bed? Oh, no. She said, I've got I've to read a chapter before I go to sleep. That's delight, right? Think of the exhaustion you would feel if you had only slept three hours in the last two days out in the rain outside with a bunch of weirdos all around you. And she said, but now I've got the book. I got to read this thing. I got to crack it open. That's delight. That's excitement. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. People don't usually behave like that when it comes to Ikea instructions for putting together your new table, right? They may be necessary, but I don't get excited about it. So the question is, how can our psalmist talk about delighting in God's instruction book? Although God's word is given for our instruction, it's so much more than just some reference manual or a pile of information. It is a whole library of truth and life-changing secrets. It contains real wisdom. It stirs us up with stories of adventure. It professes God's love to us. It explains the mysteries of the world to us. It provides perspective to us to make sense of the things that are going, around, going on around us. It teaches us. It comforts us. It corrects us. It inspires us. It prepares us. It sets before us a delightful feast to enjoy as long as we live. When the Bible describes what our relationship to it is meant to be, it uses really intense imagery. I mean, sometimes it talks about us being students of the word, but it also uses very intense analogies and illustrations for us. Things like how we are to write it onto our hearts. God's, the Bible says, you know what you should do with God's word? You should tattoo it onto your heart. You should tattoo it on your forehead, is what it says in the Old Testament. One other analogy that's used, it says that man doesn't even live by bread alone, but we survive by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that sort of intensity is repeated here as we see God's word being a delight to the happy man. And it's just a great image. You know, if I asked you, hey, what would be the best vacation if, 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 if convenience and cost and all those normal things were no object? If someone said, I'll pay for anything you want to do on this day off or this weekend off or for this vacation, what would be the most delightful thing to you? It'd be fun to make that list. Naturally, we probably wouldn't say, you know what I want to do? I'm going to sit and read the Torah. I'm going to get into numbers. I'm going to get into numbers and first Chronicles. But it's showing that the kind of work that God does in our hearts and in our lives as we walk with him is that he changes the things that delight us. And if we have a growing understanding of what God's word is, We become people who are delighted by the word. 
Psalm 119 is all about our relationship to the scriptures. Here are a few selected phrases from that long song. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. How I delight in your commands, how I love them. If your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. Here in verse 2, it's explained that we're not just to appreciate God's word, but we're to apply it. The Living Bible, paraphrase, renders the second half of the verse this way. Night and day, they are always meditating on God's laws and thinking about ways to follow him more closely. What a great paraphrasing of, of that verse. In the happy life, God's word has replaced the guidance, the advice, the mindset of unbelieving people in the unbelieving world. And you know what? That includes our own thoughts, ideas, plans, and opinions from before we were Christians. When God comes along and we are saved, we're born again, it's not just that we are saved from the world system or saved from past sins. The, the Bible explains that, he, that we're also given the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ. And the New Testament asks us, it says, let this mind be in you. And that means now God's opinions are our opinions and God's plans are our plans. And God's ideas and his, the way he thinks about things are the way that we are to think about things. The way he makes decisions are the way we're supposed to make decisions now. Now, if at this point you're thinking to, my, to yourself, hey, I believe the Bible. I love the Lord. I just, I don't delight in reading the scriptures. I'm not even really hungry for it. I feel kind of like, Ugh, it's time to read the Bible. Hey, I understand. But when we detect that attitude in ourselves, it's a sign of a problem. That's effectively, if you are tracking with what the psalmist is writing in Psalm 1, if we have that feeling, that's like the check engine light showing up on your car, right? That's like you started your car and like one of the cylinders is, is not firing and, and it's, or, or your transmission is slipping. If that happens in your car, you realize, oh, this is a problem. I'm not just going to, you know, drive across the country with all of these problems sounding on my car. I need to get someone to look at this. We need to restore proper function to the engine here. And so the fix is to, on the one hand, remove influences that crowd out the airspace in your mind and then to go to the word and see what it says. That's effectively what these opening verses say, right? The happy person is not being inundated by the influence of the worldly system or worldly people or of these different ideas that are mocking God, that are against God's way, but instead to turn around and go God's way and to delight in what he has said. And so on one level, we want to, on a, on a practical sense, say, okay, I probably need to clear the airwaves in my life right now. And if I'm giving a lot of time to influences and ideas and philosophies and mindsets that are not of the Lord, I need to replace those things and meditate instead on God's word. If you are reading through, you know, your Bible and you just, I have no hunger, I have no delight in this. There's a couple of practical things you can do to just help out with that. I mean, it might help to switch to another good translation for a while. There's a lot of really great, wonderful, faithful translations of God's word. You've spent, you know, many, many, many years in the exact same translation and you find it, you feel that you're just having trouble delighting in it. Maybe try switching to one of the other great translations and rereading those stories that are so familiar with to you in slightly different language. Or one of the things that can really help, I know has really been enjoyable for me, is to switch from just reading silently the Bible all the time to listening to the Bible. You know, for most uh, societies and most generations, most people weren't, didn't have the luxury of walking around with the Bible. 
And so the word of God was shared by mouth and you would sit and listen. And it was transmitted that way. Still today, many churches around the world, we think of believers in China, lots of people do not own a copy of the scriptures. And so they go and they hear it. So download a Bible app. There's tons of free Bible apps that will read the Bible to you. You can listen as you drive or listen as you, you know, are doing whatever. And those can be some practical things that might help jumpstart your excitement about God's word again. Because the delight in the word of God is essential to godly happiness. That's what the Holy Spirit says in this psalm. It's essential to knowing how to make decisions, how to navigate your relationships, and whether God wants you to go one way or another in life. It's essential. Verse three describes how going God's way in the delight of his word impacts a person's life. It says, he is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The image of a tree is wonderful and illuminating. God's plan is to make you like a great tree, not a statue, rigid, emotionless, but a tree, alive, strong, growing, beautiful, useful, fruitful. And you know, not a random tree isolated in some haphazard place. There's thoughtfulness to what God has done in your life here. It says you are a tree planted, planted by a farmer, by someone who is doing something on purpose. And even the term used there for streams of water is speaking of scholars say of irrigation canals. And so God takes your life and you say, well, God, I want to go your way. And he says, great, here's what we're going to do. I am going to take you and I'm going to plant you in a specific place, in a specific part of my field at a specific time. And I am going to dig irrigation canals to connect you to that unending source of water so that you can grow and that so you can be strong and you can do what you're supposed to do. When we start thinking about this analogy and the images that the word of God gives us, it makes a lot of sense why we want to be sure that we are following God's will. Because if that tree says, no, I want to be planted over there. And the Lord says, yeah, your irrigation canal is right here. Irrigation canal is in Hanford because that's where I wanted you to be. I want to go over there. And this is where people get into trouble. And we see them getting into trouble, say, in the Old Testament. We see these stories and we're reading them as people who know the beginning, middle, and end, and we say, no, don't go the other way. Stick with God. Trust the Lord. He's going to take care of you. And here the image is being told to us. He says, you're like a tree that God wants to plant in a specific place in a specific time for a specific reason, and he's going to dig specific irrigation canals to you so that your life can serve a purpose while it's growing and while it's strengthening and while it's becoming more beautiful. And that purpose is fruit. Fruit trees are really remarkable when you think about it. You put a seed in the ground, you cover it with dirt, give it some water and sunshine, and man, lo and behold, a few years later, what's happening? It's growing fruit that people can eat. And then another year, another season go by, and it's growing more fruit that people can eat, delicious food that sustains people and blesses them and and is so useful. But you know, a tree doesn't really enjoy its own fruit. In fact, you've got to get that fruit off the tree. Fruit is for others. It's for the farmer. It's for the people who take it from the branches. Now, fruit in spiritual biblical terms can mean a variety of things. Sometimes in the Bible, it does refer to the future rewards we will receive in eternity. More often, it's referring to spiritual growth in your life, the ways you glorify God or ways that you serve other people using the gifts God has given you. 
But all around, according to the Bible, there are just tons of different ways that you can and should be bearing fruit in your life as a Christian, whether that's glorifying God or making observable progress and becoming more like Jesus Christ or serving the church. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're just invited to take a look at the branches of your life. Is there fruit growing? It's an important question because lack of fruit production is the sign of a spiritual problem, a real big spiritual problem. If you woke up tomorrow with no vision in one of your eyes, I'm guessing you wouldn't just say, that's funny, and just go about your day, (laughs) right? Everything would stop. And you'd say, I got to get to a doctor. We have to figure this out. Why is this happening? We need to restore the proper function of my eye because my eye is supposed to see. And when we look at the Bible, we see that bearing fruit isn't just something that God would like for your life. It's something that he expects. He says, this is the natural operation of the Christian life, the abundant life that I've given you once you became a believer. And whether it was the nation of Israel or the letters to the churches in the book of the Revelation, when Jesus came to inspect trees and didn't find godly fruit, he wasn't happy. Here's what he said about it in John 15. He said, the father cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit. And if we remain in him, we will produce much fruit. Not only is the godly, happy life fruitful, it's evergreen. Whether in the storms of winter, the terrible heat of summer, the cool of spring, the mild of autumn, our leaf need not wither because we are not being supplied by the natural world around us and its rainfall and its weather supplied by the streams that the Lord has dug right up to us. This tree isn't subject to the weather around it, rather by the inexhaustible supply of God's presence and power. Verse four says the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So think of a beautiful 20 foot pear tree, rock solid, stable. And now think of the skin that comes off of a peanut when you crack open that shell, right? That's the difference as far as heaven is concerned between the people that are going God's way and the people that are going the other way. Now, many of the Psalms and the psalmists wrestle with the fact that from our vantage point here on the ground, it seems like the wicked get everything they want, that they have all the strength, that they have all the wealth, that they have the power and the prominence. But we're always encouraged to remember their end revealed here at the beginning of the Psalms, where we see them for what they really are. You remember that Oz, the great and powerful, seemed so impressive and important until the curtain was pulled back. And then you just laugh at how silly he is. And here the Lord reveals by pulling back the curtain, the true reality of the way of the wicked. The wind is just going to eliminate them, blow them away as if they were nothing. That same wind that would carry the fragrance of our uh, blossoms as trees and carry seed off of our trees to go and plant others Uh, what a big difference is being presented here. What does it mean to be wicked as far as the Bible is concerned? You know, for us, that's a strong word. It's reserved for particularly evil people. But in biblical terms, the wicked are simply all those who do not know and are not known by God. Where where they show up to, to see God at the end of their lives and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And he means in a saving way. He means in a personal way. In the context of our passage, it's just all those people who are on their own way rather than going God's way as revealed in the Bible. The Bible knowledge commentary says it this way. People described here as wicked are not in covenant relationship with God. They live according to their own passions. 
They may do kind and charitable deeds, but God's evaluation of them is that they are without eternal merit. What about you today? Can you say that you're in relationship with God? Can you say that you are going God's way as revealed in the Holy Bible? Have you been born again by believing on Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins? Because you see, everyone is born in sin. We're all sinners. The Bible reveals that all of us are wicked. There's none righteous. No, not one. But when you turn to God and receive his salvation, he gives you his righteousness. He makes you the oh, how happy person in Psalm 1. If you haven't received that salvation, you're not in verses two and three. You're in verses four and five. Verse five, therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment. and Sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. What we're talking about here is not just theoretical. It's not just a thought experiment. It's not just a dream someone has of a utopia or a good life. We're talking about a real course for your life that is going to end one day. And if you are not in Christ, your road will end in what is called here the judgment. You will not survive it. You will be lost and ruined. Your version might read that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And that's because there before the great white throne, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But by then it will be too late for them to be saved. There the wicked will be judged and sentenced and sent forever into the lake of fire to pay for their sins. No pardons, no time off for good behavior, no appeals. If you're not a believer, if you don't go God's way, you will face the crushing wrath of God's judgment. But that's not what God wants for you. We know so because he says so directly. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's the one that inspired the words of this song so that we could know the difference between the two roads. One leading to a happily Life ever after right now and the other leading to ruin and destruction. And you are free to select either way. That's what the Bible reveals. It's interesting. The Psalm opens with the wicked trying to convince a person to come along with them on their path. We see where that path ends, but we also see where God's way leads. At the end of the line, we're told there is an assembly of the righteous all grouped up together, a big congregation of people whose lives have been saved and made beautiful by God's power. So the question for each believer here today is this, who are we bringing with us? Will we pass through the gates of heaven alone? Or will we be a part of adding more than just us to the community of the righteous? We can't force people to believe that's not our responsibility, but we've been planted in a specific time and in a specific place among a specific group of people by God so that we can influence those around us, spread the gospel, and be a part of God's life-saving work on the earth. He says, I've, I've commissioned you to do that, for you to go and be a part of bringing people into that great assembly one day. Verse 6, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This psalm has the day-to-day in mind and the long view. It covers your life from this morning on through to eternity. Along the way, we are assured that a caring, loving God is watching every step of the way. He's not watching passively like we watch TV and the images just happen. That's not how God's watching. No, the Bible reveals that God watches as a counselor, as a friend, as a yoke fellow, as a teacher, as a bridegroom, and as a judge. That's how God watches actively. He's God with us. He walks with us. He's the one that says that you're to follow after me, to walk with me. It's the image that he used. 
The Lord is watching because your life matters. Each and every person here today, your life matters to God. He knows you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And so he has provided everything necessary for each one of us to not only avoid ruin, but to find fulfillment and to bring others with us as we walk in heavenly happiness through storms, through sunshine, through every season of life. What does it mean to pursue happiness? I don't think the, the founders really knew, but Psalm 1 defines it as a person going God's way, applying the word to their lives. And as a result, they are growing, strengthening. They are made more and more beautiful, more and more useful, more and more glorifying to God, and they're blessing others along the way. The happy life of Psalm 1 is not defined by personal selfishness or emotional feelings. Rather, the real happy life of heaven is all about our father, our fruit, our future. It's the life that he's given to us, the life that he's revealed to us, the life that he invites us to pursue after today as we obey his word, as we delight in him and allow him to do what he wants to do in and through us. Let's pray.